1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Hi there. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. real noom user compensated to provide their story in four weeks the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week individual results may vary
2: hello to the Versailles anniversary project a project coming to you because I am able to spend so much flaming time on history such as this if you like your history very very detailed looking at different personalities different diplomatic dealings an awful lot of scheming intriguing and of course as I said all the oodles of detail that you could expect to get from a project as ambitious in scope as one which looks at Versailles, then, yes, you've come to the right place. When Diplomacy Fails, since I eventually got into my groove, has always been about the detail and about giving you the inside story on things which are often just glossed over in textbooks in a few sentences or so. The Paris Peace Conference made the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles became World War II and job done. But as we've learned, that is not the case. And as we've also learned, there's an awful lot to this story which deserves to be known because it's so interesting, so fascinating and in many respects entertaining. It also informs a lot of what people should know about this era and gives context to a lot of the things that came later on. I've really been enjoying this coverage and if you have too, then make sure you tell someone the best way to make this podcast get out there more is by telling people about it. Word of mouth, a personal recommendation, is still the best way you can support this podcast and it costs you absolutely nothing. But all you have to do really is remember BeFit to remember the best ways to support, get in contact with and inquire about this podcast. B being for blog, The Vassal State, which you can of course find fairly easily. E being for email, wdfpodcast.hotmail.com F being for Facebook, the Facebook page we've recently passed 3,000 likes, so that's pretty nice And of course the Facebook group, both of which are kind of lighting up at the moment with all the delegation, game stuff and Versailles stuff going on If you like your history, delivered to you in all these different areas, then make sure you be fit Of course, I is for iTunes, as you know Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Unless, of course, you don't have an Apple phone or you're not using Apple Podcasts or anything. In which case, subscribing on iTunes wouldn't make much sense. But you get the dealio. Let people know that you like this show and that you want it to succeed because you care about history. You're a history fan. That is why the first Patreon tier at the $1 level is called History Fan. Because you're a fan of history and you are helping it to thrive by supporting this show. So thanks so much for that. And I hope you enjoy this very special episode.
1: 3,000 miles from home, an American army is fighting for you. Which America stands, may endure upon the earth. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy, between them, have made waste people to the Treaty of and the whole field of international relationships is in perilous confusion. The
0: affairs of the world can be set straight only by the firmest and most determined exhibition of the will to leave and make the right prevail because we're
1: him because we're him because we're here.
2: You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 27. Today is the 25th of January, 2019, and on this day in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. The main thing of interest today was the meeting of the Peace Congress at the Quai d'Orsay. I found shortly before noon that the President was expected to speak upon the resolution endorsing the League of Nations. I therefore wrote him a note suggesting the line of his argument. He used two of the main points I suggested. That is, that the United States had a less selfish interest in the creation of such a League than any large power. And further, that war must be stopped. Otherwise, science would create engines of destruction which would destroy civilization. The President made an admirable speech, one of the best I have heard him deliver. He delivered it better too than any I have heard him make. He spoke extemporaneously, and with a depth of feeling which carried conviction. Lord George spoke well, and so did Orlando, but neither were comparable to the President. This was how Edward House chose to cover the events of the 25th of January 1919, the day when, 100 years ago, the League of Nations was first presented to the world. The final version of the League of Nations, with its 26 articles, was not completed until 14th of February, and even then it wasn't fully, properly completed. But this initial presentation of the League contained several ideas, and no real concrete decisions. It was in fact supposed to be an opportunity for those powers in attendance to voice their opinions, and make their influence felt. There would in time be 20 members of the Commission on the League of Nations, 10 from the five great powers and 10 from the minor powers. The big five had already selected their two men each. Wilson and House would hold the fort for the United States, while the French selection included Léon Bourgeois, a politician known for his pacifism and passion for international order, having attended the peace conferences at The Hague in 1899 and 1907. The British duo were to consist of Robert Cecil, son of the legendary Prime Minister Lord Salisbury, and Jan Smuts, the South African Boer Commando, turned champion of the British imperial interest. Smuts was to have a profound influence over the initial face of the League of Nations. In December 1918, acting on the view that Wilson's vision for the League was far too vague, I wonder what gave him that impression, Smuts worked to reinterpret Britain's role in the post-war world, starting with its relationship to the United States with all the old powers falling by the wayside, only Britain, France and America seemed to remain. Now more than ever, Britain had opportunities to expand her influence and imperium, and the best way to do that was through friendship with the United States. The cultural, historic affinity between the two nations, and the commonality in language and political thought, singled the United States out. With the combined might of the British Empire and the United States, no power could stand against this extended Anglo-Saxon vision, and it was quite a vision, one which France was excluded from, since she was a competitor for British markets in Africa and the Middle East. The best way to secure the American friendship, in Smuts's mind, was to forge an agreement with the United States over the League of Nations. Smuts knew, as did his peers, that Wilson was desperate to see the League receive Britain's blessing. If London was gracious in its acceptance of the League, then Wilson would likely feel compelled to give ground on other areas, such as on the redistribution of colonies and the freedom of the seas. So Jan Smuts had a distinct interest in making the League work, but he was also taken with it as a concept for preserving peace in the world. The problem Smuts believed was that, as it stood upon the President's arrival in Paris, the concept of the League of Nations, it was was just far too vague, even if it was a nice idea. It required some definition and precision if it was to be a feasible project, and Smuts thus worked to make this happen. In his memorandum entitled, A Practical Suggestion, Smuts clarified how the League would work, imagined several new bodies for it, developed a conflict resolution process, teased out the concept of mandates, and even outlined how a general assembly of nations would coexist. Smuts' document was a great success, and it was republished as a pamphlet whereupon it captured the imagination of millions of citizens typically unsure how to present the idea he had so long dreamed of delivering, Wilson found that when he read Smuts's memo, he agreed with the vast majority of what had been written. Consequently, the President's vision of the League, which was presented to the Allies on the 19th of January, looked remarkably similar to Smuts's concept. Smuts did not mind. In fact, he was both flattered and excited. I think there is a special satisfaction in knowing that your will is quietly finding out the current of the Great Will, so that in the end God will do what you effectively set out to do, he said. In such a way did a former enemy of the British Empire come to have such a profound impact on arguably the most infamous institution of the 20th century. As House suggests, Wilson's speech on the League went down well and the mood was full of high-minded sentiments about the campaign for peace and the potential good the League could do. Technically speaking, though, Wilson would refrain from introducing too many concepts or structures to those present. He preferred to speak generally about the need for such an organisation and the value of peace for a war-torn world. It was unfortunate that the smaller powers present made a bit of a fuss and complained at their scant representation. This discontent was likely sourced from the very small amount of things they had been called to do up until now. However, Woodrow Wilson parried their complaints and it was explained that the League would eliminate the need for war and defend the rights of smaller nations who could not alone defend themselves. Wilson also made it clear that he intended to develop the covenant or constitution of the League within a fortnight, so that he would have something to present to Congress when he returned home from the 14th of February. At this point, Wilson may well have believed that this date represented the end of his Parisian adventure, but he was soon to think otherwise. Notwithstanding the numerous questions which everyone had, or the skepticism which some had, there was good reason to be excited for what the future held, and we should not imagine that Wilson did not have some American supporters among his camp who identified and sympathized with his ideals. One of these was Gilbert Hitchcock, a Nebraskan and Democrat who founded the Omaha World Herald newspaper. In the summer of 1919, Writing in the Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, Hitchcock would write with some enthusiasm about the importance of this moment in establishing a new era of peace with the League leading the charge. Hitchcock wrote, In times past, one nation has one great issue that it has busied itself with, and another a different one, but now 14 nations at least have united on one purpose, and I've been actively engaged in negotiating with each other, in Paris, for the purpose of devising a means by which the world hereafter will be, ensured international justice and worldwide peace. To me it is a glorious spectacle. To me it seems as though we, born in one age of the world, are to pass into another epoch and die in a better age. It seems to me that a new era has come to the world, just as much as when Christianity came, just as much as when the Dark Ages were swept away just as much as when chivalry came into Europe to refine and advance the development of the people. We, who have lived in the past, have lived in the age of war. If this great enterprise now going on in Paris, under the leadership of the United States, succeeds, we are to pass into a new era of the world, which histories will record as a new era climax of civilization. It is an inspiring thought, and one which may well absorb the attention of the civilized world. Lloyd George, for his part, saw the League as a potential foil to the threat posed by Bolshevism. It would stand as an alternative version of the world which all could prosper within, and it would answer the challenges which Bolshevism presented. As he remarked in late March 1919, If we are to offer Europe an alternative to Bolshevism, we must make the League of Nations into something which will be both a safeguard to those nations who are prepared for fair dealing with their neighbours, and a menace to those who would trespass on the rights of their neighbours, whether they are imperialist empires or imperialist Bolsheviks. An essential element, therefore, in the peace settlement is the constitution of the League of Nations as the effective guardian of international right and international liberty throughout the world. Lloyd George's relationship with the League has come under greater scrutiny in recent years, with the traditional image of him as the lukewarm, opportunistic supporter of the League being... Openly challenged. Right from the beginning, his government's Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, had declared in late 1916 that, behind international law and behind all treaty arrangements for preventing or limiting hostilities, some form of international sanction should be devised which would give pause to the hardiest aggressor. In March 1917, Lloyd George told his cabinet that, Men must in future be taught to shun war, as every civilized being shuns a murder, not merely because it is wrong in itself, but because it leads to inevitable punishment. That is the only sure foundation for any League of Peace. Seventeen months later, Lloyd George repeated this point in almost identical language. The basis of the League would be that nations which attempted to repeat Germany's offence will combine such forces against them as to make it impossible for them to succeed. Throughout 1918, the British government had developed the blueprint for a League under the distinguished lawyer, Sir Walter Fillimore, the result being the Fillimore Report. Wilson, true to form, found it disappointing, and he unhelpfully noted that he would be producing his own report on the League's structure and purpose soon enough. This, as we know, ended up basically being a copy of what Smuts had said rather than Wilson's own ideas, but the President at least could say that he hadn't simply adopted what the British government had said. Well, maybe not in this case, anyway. Lloyd George was thus a far more enthused supporter of the League than is generally assumed, and Britain played a more pivotal role in establishing the League than is assumed as well. Yet the British were not at all the first to conceive of the idea of a League, nor were they the first to try and carry it out. These investigations helped to remind us that the image of Woodrow Wilson sailing into Europe with his League in one hand and his Bible in the other doesn't quite fit the reality. The League idea, as we've seen in previous episodes, was not at all fully formed, even when all gathered to discuss it on this day a hundred years ago. Indeed, the sheer disorganisation and confusion regarding what the League meant or what it would look like, combined with Wilson's penchant for vagueness where any of the 14 points were concerned, made the League of Nations seem more like a pipe dream than an actual plan. Of course, though, Wilson was deadly serious about it. He had made the 14 points the basis for peace negotiations, and within those 14 points, the League existed. Furthermore, sorting out what the League meant and how it would work while it was a convoluted process it was still something which Wilson took seriously enough to place at the top of the agenda for the Paris Peace Conference, ahead of other issues, very contentious issues, like reparations or even dealing with Germany full stop. As we said though, Wilson was a visionary in that he was the first to push the league idea into a 20th century spotlight, but he was not the first to shine a spotlight on the concept of a mutually defending league. This idea was first posed by that titan of political philosophy, Immanuel Kant, who wrote Perpetual Peace, a Philosophical Sketch, in 1795. Writing at a time of terrible conflict, comparable to that which the peoples of 1919 had endured, Kant's preliminary ideas and definitive principles read like a prototype mixture of the League of Nations and 14 points, all rolled into one. Just so you know, Immanuel Kant wanted to abolish secret treaties and standing armies, states were to be entitled to rule themselves without fear of domination from a stronger neighbour, all states should be republican, and the peace of the world would depend on a federation of free states. Immanuel Kant's Perpetual Peace book thus anticipated Woodrow Wilson's approaches by more than a century in particular the idea that democracies, or republics as Kant calls them, should be the only form of government, rang true for Wilson's notes to Germany, as does the allusion to a federation of free states. Yet, while Kant may have been the first to express these ideas, he was not the one tasked with putting them into practice. That was instead the mission, incredibly enough as it sounds, of the Russian Tsar in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars. In the late 1810s, Tsar Alexander attempted to create a Big Five Council, where the major powers of Britain, France, Russia, Prussia and Austria would forge a League of Peace that would guard against any eruption of such a war again. Interestingly, Britain neglected to take part in this, but undeterred, the Tsar then turned to the distant United States to ask if they wanted to take Britain's place in this League of Big Five Powers. The response, which John Quincy Adams, Secretary of State at the time, sent back to the American ambassador in St. Petersburg, is worth detailing in its full, particularly for the message it sends regarding American involvement in Europe. A century after this letter was signed, much of the ideology underpinning it would remain true, although the circumstances would certainly have changed. In this letter, John Quincy Adams said, The political system of the United States is also essentially extra-European. To stand in firm and cautious independence of all entanglement in the European system has been a cardinal point of their policy under every administration of their government and from the peace of 1783 to this day. It might perhaps be sufficient to answer that the organisation of our government is such as not to admit of our exceeding formally to that compact, but it may be added that the President, approving its general principles and thoroughly convinced of the benevolence and virtuous motives which led to the conception and presided at the formation of this system by the Emperor Alexander, the President believes that the United States will more effectually contribute to the great and sublime objects for which it was concluded by abstaining from a formal participation in it than they could as stipulated members of it. But independent of the prejudices which have been excited against this instrument in the public opinion, which time and experience of good effects may wear away, it may be observed that for the repose of Europe as well as of America, the American and European political systems should be kept as separate and distinct from each other as possible. Following this abortive effort to maintain peace through the 19th century cooperation of major powers, pacifists took matters into their own hands. The Inter-Parliamentary Union was established by a British MP and a French deputy in 1889 with the goal of preserving peace and resolving conflict through negotiation, foremost in that organization's goals. The membership quickly swelled, encompassing more than a third of the French local state parliament representatives by 1911. Another body, the International Peace Bureau, was founded in 1891 with the task of serving as a base of operations for peace organizations throughout the world. These two organizations demonstrated that the concept of a League of Nations wasn't a virtual unknown. The question wasn't so much whether there was a market for these ideas, but whether the idea of a peace conference could be extended across the entire world, and of course, how it would work and whether it would work at all. Supporters of the League idea ranged from liberals to socialists to empire men, eager to protect their investments through peace. The outbreak of the First World War added urgency to the idea that a World Congress which worked for peace could only be a good thing, especially if it was empowered to act in everyone's interests. Revealingly, although there had been a legacy of support for international peace organisations, such as the League to Enforce Peace, which also had British and French offices, the political divisions and isolation from the warlike continent meant that the United States was less involved in these great peace bodies than their European peers. It should not surprise us, then, that in the aftermath of Congress's failure to accept the Treaty of Versailles, and consequently the League of Nations, Political theorists on both sides of the fence in the United States prepared their arguments for why this was a tragedy, or, on the other hand, why the world should have seen this coming, since America's constitution and traditions would not allow such a commitment. This opinion was expressed by the Republican and Philadelphia native James M. Beck, who wrote the following piece in the North American Review in 1920. It has been intimated by a distinguished English publicist that the action of the Senate is a virtual repudiation of America's promises. And it has been said in France by a distinguished journalist that the action of the United States is virtually tearing up of the treaty to which the United States is morally committed and that France will be slow hereafter to give any engagements to America their face value. These suggestions are unfortunate and most prejudicial. They injuriously affect the political relations between three great liberal democracies of the world which can rest upon a friendly public opinion They will intensify the opposition in the United States to any further attempts to secure the assent of the Senate to the proposed League of Nations. The American people are not conscious of bad faith in this matter, and this must be clear to any well-minded man who will consider dispassionately the events of the last 12 months. The European nations had ample and exceptional warnings that the American peace representatives had no authority to commit their country to any treaty obligations, Under the Constitution of the United States, there cannot be, in fact, any such thing as an ambassador or peace commissioner or plenipotentiary. It is true that Colonel House, who flitted between the chancelleries of Europe with undefined and extra constitutional authority, called himself the Commissioner plenipotentiary of the United States, and that the Chief Commissioner of the United States at the conference was the President. But, wisely or unwisely, the United States, from the very beginning of the government, had given explicit notice to all the world in its constitution that no official, however great or illustrious, could commit the United States to any treaty obligation except by and with advice and consent of the Senate, and provided two-thirds of the Senate present concur. One is drawn to the fact that such a chasm of opinion existed in the United States at the time. On the one hand, you had men like Gilbert Hitchcock, who believed passionately in the promise of the League of Nations and would do anything to make it a reality. But on the other, you had fierce critics of the League in principle who contested its naive claims and who argued from the beginning that it was unconstitutional. Wilson, as we can see even from this very brief sampling of opinion, was dealing with two versions of America, and unfortunately for him, the anti-league version was larger than his own. At least, so it seemed by the end of the whole treaty fight. One figure who was later to feature prominently on the anti-league side, as we have learned, was Wilson's own Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, the man whom Wilson effectively ignored for most of the conference when he was not busy stirring up house against him. In response to these repeated snubs, which could be explained by a variety of factors, Lansing emerged from the Paris Peace Conference as one of Wilson's harshest critics, willing to lay into everything from the President's style and approach to his lack of planning and delegating to his core ideas which were, Lansing said, at heart, unformed and also badly presented. The following extract is one of the longest ones we will be delivering in this project, but as far as biting critiques of the President's League of Nations goes, few figures do a better job getting to the heart of Wilson's problem. In 1921, in his memoir on the conference entitled The Big Four, Robert Lansing did not hold back. Remarking on the vagueness and the other flaws inherent in the league scheme, Lansing came out fighting when he said the following... The President, of course, had his famous 14 points, and the declarations appearing in his subsequent addresses as bases of the peace, but they were little more than a series of principles and policies to guide in the drafting of actual terms. As to a complete project, or even an outline of terms which could be laid before the delegates for consideration, he apparently had none. In fact, when this lack was felt by members of the American Commission, they undertook to have their legal advisers prepare a skeleton treaty, but had to abandon the work after it was well under way because the President resented the idea, asserting emphatically that he did not intend to allow lawyers to draft the treaty, a declaration that discouraged those of the profession from volunteering suggestions as to the Covenant and other articles of the treaty. The President, having not done the preliminary work himself, and unwilling to have others do it, was wholly unprepared to submit anything in concrete form to the European statesman, unless it was his imperfect plan for a League of Nations. The consequence was that the general scheme of the treaty and many of the important articles were prepared and worked out by the British and French delegations. Thus, the exceptional opportunity which the President had to impress his ideas on the conference and to lead in the negotiations was lost, and he failed to maintain his controlling position among the statesmen who were, as it turned out, to dictate the terms of peace, while his utterances, which have been the foundation of his popularity, suffered in a measure the same fate. I doubt if Mr. Wilson had worked out, even tentatively, the application of the principles and precepts which he had declared while the war was in progress, and which had been generally accepted at the time of the armistice as the basis of peace. The consequence was that he must have had a very vague and nebulous scheme for their introduction into the treaty, because many of his declarations required accurate definition before they could be practically applied to the problems which awaited solution at the conference. Naturally, there was an atmosphere of uncertainty which prevented the American commissioners from pressing for definite objects. The whole delegation, the president included, lost prestige and influence with the foreign delegates by this lack of a program. Here is shown one of the inherent weaknesses of Mr. Wilson, which impaired his capacity as the head of a diplomatic commission to negotiate so intricate a settlement as the Treaty with Germany, he was inclined to let matters drift, relying apparently on his own quickness of perception and his own sagacity to defeat or amend terms proposed by members of other delegations from first to last. there was no teamwork, no common counsel, and no concerted action. It was discouraging to witness this utter lack of system when system was so essential. The reason was manifest; there was no directing head to the American commission to formulate a plan to organise the work and to issue definite instructions. Another figure with strong opinions on Woodrow Wilson's style and lack of a core plan for carrying out his vision was a man who had already worked for some time to create a scheme which would help to hatch a form of the League which Wilson wanted, the British Prime Minister, of course, David Lloyd George. Wilson's objections to the alternative versions of the League, which the British and French espoused, rubbed his peers the wrong way, especially because Wilson seemed to have scarcely much of a conception about what the League would look like until the very last moment, and even then he wasn't completely sure. Lloyd George interpreted this opposition to negotiation, where Wilson was concerned, to the President's single-minded focus on that concept, near and dear as it was to his heart. As Lloyd George wrote in his memoirs, But for President Wilson, the League of Nations meant, if not the whole treaty, at least the only part of the treaty in which he was interested. He intended that it should conform to his ideas, and that it should be recognised that they were his ideas, and not those of anyone else, be he associate or subordinate. His abnormal confidence in himself, and limited confidence in others, were largely responsible for his reluctance to delegate his duties. So it was that that which he could not attend to himself, he often neglected altogether. On a side note, Lloyd George was perceptive enough to note the additional risk which this feverish volume of work had not only on the president's ability to keep up with it all and deliver his promises but also on his health. As would later become obvious, Wilson's performance at the Paris Peace Conference and the political struggle thereafter were such intense episodes so overwhelmingly exhausting and taxing that they sent the president, following several strokes, to an early grave. Lloyd George noted this in another long extract, sorry about that, but I really feel it effectively captures the impact of the President's decision essentially to go it alone in Paris, so yeah, I think it's worth it. This is what Lloyd George said about Wilson and his decision to go it alone. From his own point of view, it was a fatal decision. It helped to break him down physically. At the time, he insisted on attending every meeting of the League Commission. He also insisted on receiving personally the agents of all states and would-be states that crowned the Paris hotels, and listening to all their tales of woe and their hopes of loot. Here again, he would not depute any of his staff to have preliminary interviews with the innumerable races that thronged his ante-room, and to inform him fully prepared beforehand of the points to be raised and confine them to the issues that mattered. No nervous system could stand for months the constant strain of work which the President unnecessarily took upon himself. About halfway through the Congress, there were distressing symptoms in his face of this wear and tear on his system, which ultimately ravaged and undermined his health, and in doing so wrecked all his cherished schemes and ambitions. Long before the Congress came to an end, he emerged out of the ordeal a shaken man. The undelegable duties cast upon the head of a great international conference are heavy enough without adding to them any works of superrogation. I never worked harder or more continuously, even during the most anxious days of the war, than during the peace conference. I started on my papers for the day's agenda at 7 in the morning and often much earlier. My breakfast, lunch and dinner were generally interviews with colleagues, officials or ministers representing foreign states. When the conference adjourned, there were interviews with the Foreign Secretary, Sir Maurice Hankey, Dominion Premiers or Allied delegates. As to Monsieur Clemenceau, one of his ministers complained to me that he got up at four in the morning and sometimes sent for one or other of them at six. He generally went to bed at 9pm. Clemenceau must have had a marvellous physique, for he was then 78. But even Clemenceau at his vital best could not have gone through the perpetual grind to which the American President subjected his nervous system. To add committee work and other deputable tasks to those which the principles alone could deal, was to court a nervous breakdown for even the strongest man. Even if he could have looked deep within himself and accepted the inevitability of political defeat, by now it was too late for Wilson to go back. After having steered this ship of state by himself, he believed, for so long, it was impossible to hand the wheel to anyone else, to trust anyone else with the responsibility of all that he imagined he could accomplish. As a consequence, Wilson paid for his failures pretty much with his life, and the world paid for his political failures arguably with the Second World War. Therefore, while he helped to get the League established and roused many enthusiastic supporters in Paris to his side to sit on its assembly, the victory would in the end be bittersweet, once the final version of the Covenant of the League of Nations was confirmed, and the League officially opened its doors on the 20th of January 1920. The institution, which Wilson had for so long dreamed of, did become a reality, but it was imagined into being and thereafter honed, operated and protected without the input of its most high-profile supporter. Yet, when Woodrow Wilson sat amongst his peers on this day 100 years ago, the curious story of the League of Nations was really only beginning and its greatest tests, by far, were still to come.